0: Hello. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, Episode 72. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and modern science with an emphasis on the great 19th century philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Those of you who have regularly listened to this podcast know that the work of psychologist Carl Jung has been discussed here often and particularly his notion of the four personality types, which I covered in detail in episode 68. Now, however, in this episode, I'm going to be taking a deep dive on Carl Jung's notion of the psyche and how it works and what it contains. And one of the most popular episodes of this podcast series was number 49, which dealt with Jung's notion of the unconscious mind. And this will be the major discussion point for this episode. Now, the reason I'm focusing on this topic is because during my research uh, in preparing for this current episode, I was reviewing Jung's work, and I, I discovered a striking finding, to me anyway, and that is I believe that the two pillars of his collective unconscious that he describes, the feminine anima and the masculine animus archetypes, relates specifically to the right brain-left brain dichotomy that we have discussed here so often. And with this connection, I believe Jung's conception of the psych can provide a psychological, philosophical, and scientific roadmap and model that links together everything we have discussed here over the last few years, including Hegel. And one other point, regarding the two major archetypes of Jung's collective unconscious, the anima and the animus, I'm very much aware that in today's world of more fluid gender identifications, uh, we need to move past uh, sexual stereotypes, and I believe that uh, a better analysis of what Jung is proposing here um, allows us to do that, that we can look at this in gender-neutral language that goes beyond bodily biology right to the psychological attitudes and expressions that, that they represent. So let's get into it. What I'm going to be first describing is sort of a pyramid of consciousness. At the top of the pyramid, the capstone is the ego, one's own personal subjectivity and identity. However, there is much below this capstone, the ego. It is sort of like the tip of the iceberg that sticks out of the water. However, in this connection, there's no bottom to this pyramid. There's no bottom to this iceberg. It goes down deep and it connects to all living things, even beyond human beings. Now there are several steps downward from this capstone as we venture into the unconscious we'll be discussing and but they impact us nonetheless but let's start at the top at the capstone. Now in referring to this capstone I'm not calling this the self here. Um, I'm using Jung's terminology, and he does not equate the ego with the true self, the individuated self. The true self includes psychic components far down the pyramid, many of the um, unconscious elements as well, not just our conscious ego awareness. Now, this capstone is composed of three parts. First, there is the ego, and next there's the ego's own consciousness, what it is aware of both internally and externally, And thirdly, there's the ego's persona, and we'll be describing this in a minute. But first, the ego. That's our sense of who we are as an individual. Our identity as a single person. It's the I presence that we feel, the me as opposed to you. And the second part is the ego's consciousness of both itself and the world about it, of other people as well. This is my internal consciousness of myself and my consciousness of my surroundings and other people. Then comes the third element, and this is interesting, the persona, which uh, is a term that Jung coined, and essentially it is the face, the personality that we show to other people. Think of it as a mask that each of us invisibly wears to present ourselves to others, and we all, we all use personas. We all have it, and we all need one, and we can have different personas depending on who we are with, whether it's a job, our family, our friends. But there's another side to this persona. The fact that we choose to show the world some part of us hides the part that we do not want to show the world. And there may be conscious aspects of ourselves that we feel are not worthy to be shown in a social or business setting. For example, just as an aside, let me tell you a quick story. In my college days, I played in a musical band. It was a rock and roll band. And when I graduated school, I was looking to get a job. And I would talk a lot about my band and my job interviews, because it was so important when I was to my college experience. And while the business people I interviewed with were very interested in the music and the band, I'd, I'd tell stories, it was of no interest to them as a job skill. So after a very lively discussion, they would say something like, oh, it's so great meeting you, but I would end up not getting a job offer. And this happened again and again. I finally figured out what was going on and dropped any mention of my musical background, and I... Then I quickly landed a job after I uh, did that. So I dropped the musician part from my work persona. Now, I was still conscious of it. So it's it not a true sh- you know, shadow in that sense, but it was not part of my persona. My music was a pleasant experience, and it was just something I had to eliminate from my job persona. However, there can be unpleasant parts of our being that we do not want to have part of our persona. There may be certain innate desires that are not publicly acceptable, or even habits, neuroses, phobias, fears that one does not want to show others. Their persona would exclude this from others seeing. And some of these elements may end up being so repressed that we have no conscious awareness of them. They're buried so deep we don't don't remember them anymore. But they're still there. They're buried in the unconscious. And this was Freud's big breakthrough in understanding the human psyche. And as we've discussed before... And this was where Jung went farther than uh, Freud. He, he he acknowledged what Freud was talking about about the buried, the repressed aspects of our consciousness, or, or that are buried in the unconscious. But uh, Jung took it down further into the collective unconscious, which we're going to be discussing. There are parts that that are buried that that are within all of us and all of our unconscious minds. But but let me back up. These these dark parts of our personality that we bury or remain hidden, Jung termed this the shadow, and this is the next step down on the pyramid from the capstone. But before we get into the shadow, just a few more words on the persona. It's important that one has a healthy persona, and so what is an unhealthy persona? Well, if we become so identified with our persona, what we show to others, we can exclude other big parts of our life, and this can be unhealthy psychologically. For example, if we identify solely with our profession, we may be limiting our true fulfillment as a human being. You probably heard the expression, I need to get a life. And this is what this expression is referring to, a life beyond one's job. The objective, though, is to not eliminate the persona. We need, to, we need the persona to operate socially in the world. And we certainly have different personas for different aspects of our lives, as I mentioned, one for work, one for family, one for social media, etc. And we could even have hybrid personas, mixtures, if you will. So we have to try to keep our personas as flexible as possible while still having one to, to be open to our full personhood, all our beliefs, likes, and, and desires. And I did not forget, repress, or bury the fact that I was a musician in college. It was just not part of my job persona. Later in life, when I was secure in my profession, I began playing in, in bands again on the side for fun. So music rejoined my public job persona, if you will. But anyway, enough about me. Let's move on to the shadow. The shadow contains the parts of our personality that we do not want to consciously admit that we have. It's not easy dealing with the shadow because we keep most of it buried. These are the parts of ourselves that we do not like. And we may be aware of some of this, but we're not aware of the whole thing. Gurdjieff, who we've talked about before, he said that everyone has a chief weakness, as he called it, usually something one does not want to admit to themselves or even recognize. And uncovering this chief weakness and addressing it can be a lifetime's work. It's certainly very hard to do. But it is only bringing up as much as possible of the shadow to our conscious awareness that we can continue to grow psychologically as a human being. And obviously, personal forgiveness and non-judgment can certainly play a role here. Oftentimes when one develops an insight into their own shadow, it can feel like noticing an elephant in the room for the first time, even though one realizes then that the elephant has been there the whole time. Oftentimes in in, um, therapy, and psychological therapy, the therapist will recognize what the elephant is, is early on, but it may take years for the client to understand it. The therapist cannot just tell them what it is and then send them a bill. The person must come to their own understanding of it. And that's what therapy is all about. And this is what is critical to the therapeutic process. Now, I'm not going to go into what possible shadow elements there are. There's no need to. Shadow elements can relate to physical needs and desires, emotional issues, scary and forbidden thoughts, and so forth. These will, of course, vary from person to person. But I'm sure all of you have a sense of what I'm referring to. The the shadow exists in all of us. Now, I mentioned previously Jung's four personality types. And those, if you recall, are thinking, physical, sensing, emotions, and intuition. And we covered this in episode 68. And in that episode, I explained that we tend to favor one of the four functions and downplay its opposite, which gives us our own personality. Thinking being opposite to feeling and intuition being opposite to physical sensation. And when we favor one of the functions, the opposite then can become part of our personal shadow. For example, a strong thinking analytical type might suppress their emotional side, and a strong physical type person might suppress their intuitions, not even know they exist. Now, there's a good tell as to what one's shadow is through the the process of projection. We tend to project the shadow parts of ourselves onto others and then dislike them for it. The person... That hates people who are stingy, for example, maybe projecting their own buried stinginess as part of their shadow onto others. And just look at the extremes of both political parties, how they point their finger at the other side, and they say the exact same things. They fight unfair. They're not like us. They lie and cheat, not like us, et cetera, et cetera. And religions, of course, do this as well. They project suppressed evils within onto others, and this creates tremendous conflicts and wars. Now, there are two aspects to the shadow, one personal and one collective. The personal element of the shadow are the things that we've experienced directly that we want buried. And the collective shadow, though, contains things that society as a whole, or the the society that we are part of, wants to keep buried. And we absorb this, this shadow, this collective shadow, just by being part of society. Now, I can say I'm older, growing up in the 1950s and 60s, I can personally say that there were so many aspects of human sexuality that were deeply buried by society back then. The sex was not discussed in most homes, or not in the media, and it really wasn't until the sexual revolution of the mid-late 1960s that thin- things began to change, and they changed very dramatically, in fact. It's hard to explain just how repressed the 1950s were if you weren't there, and, but repressed it was. And there are, of course, other aspects of social bearing of unpleasant issues beyond sex. Many problems in society are kept in the dark and continue to be kept in the dark. Poverty, racism, other societal problems are often swept under the rug. And so the problem can no longer be seen. But it will eventually erupt, as all things do, like the race riots in, in America in the early 1960s. Okay, that's the shadow. Now we can move a bit lower down the pyramid. The community shadow is also part of the collective unconscious. But below the community shadow, we come to the archetypes. They're they're what all humans share. It's not just our community or our, our society. And the key point that I want to bring out here, there are two major pillars to this collective unconscious that we all share. And that's the archetypal duality of what Jung calls the anima and the animus. And I'm going to spend a lot of time on this because it's so important. And it also ties in so directly to what we've been discussing, including linking the left brain thinking to right brain reasoning, and a lot of what Hegel had to say. But first, let's review what Jung meant by these two terms. Simply put, for Jung, the anima represents the unconscious feminine side of an outward masculine-oriented personality, and the animus is the unconscious masculine side of an outward feminine-oriented personality. What this means is that when we identify as a male and express our masculinity, the feminine side is then buried in the unconscious. And when one identifies as female and they express their femininity, the masculine side is buried in the unconscious. Now, need to pause here. And I want to discuss Jung's use of the term masculine-feminine. And I know in today's gender fluid world, the use of these terms may seem outdated and even sexist. And the key point is, though, Jung himself, even though he used the terms masculine and feminine probably more than we would today or more than I'm going to be using today, he did not tie the anima and animus expression entirely to body type. Not at all. it was, did not have to do with one was a physical, biological male or female. But he did associate a number of traits and characteristics with a masculine and a feminine attitude, which he called the anima and the animus. So I think even the term anima and animus is a step away from the biological male and female. And it's, it, these terms are much broader than, than biology and the body one is born with. And this is what we're going to explore. Now the terms themselves, anima and animus, they come from the the Latin word for air, br- breath, spirit, pneuma. and they're, they're very similar. But they're they're the two major polarities uh, of the collective unconscious, the, the major duality uh, that 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 is there. And I discussed Jung's collective unconscious uh, on memory in the last episode. You may want to refresh you that if you if you care to that that. Uh, memory is something we inherit by being born, a collective memory. It's, and it's, it's part physically inherited, but, but there's more than just a physical inheritance. And again, that was episode 71, the previous episode. In that episode, I showed how the mind through memory and the body exist as one whole. Now, I want to move away from gender stereotypes and discuss this deep polarity and what it actually represents within us. And many myths, religions, and philosophies have pointed to this duality. Of course, we've discussed being and nothing and Hegel, heaven and earth and the Bible. And masculine and feminine concepts are ubiquitous in many languages today. In, the, in French, when I took it, everything was either a le or a la. And, of course, you have the yin and yang. I'm going to now talk about the yin-yang symbol here for a bit because it describes what is going on with Jung's anima and animus. In the collective unconscious so well. The yin-yang symbol is used in much of Chinese philosophy, and in particular, it is the foundation of the Chinese I Ching, or Book of Changes. And for more information on the I ching please see episode 30 of this podcast. Now, the yin-yang are the primary two forces of change in the I Ching. And a good description of these two forces I found on the internet follows, quote, yin originally meant shady, secret, dark, mysterious, cold. Yang in turn meant clear, bright, the sun, heat, the opposite of yin. For these basic opposites, a complete system of opposites was elaborated. Yin represents everything about the world that is dark, hidden, passive, receptive, yielding, cool, soft, and feminine. Yang represents everything about the world that is illuminated, evident, active, aggressive, controlling, hot, hard, and masculine. Everything in the world can be identified with either yin or yang. Earth is the ultimate yin object. Heaven is the ultimate yang object, end quote. It's important to understand that the anima and the animus, the primordial yin and yang, are not exclusively male and female. They stand for the main core polarities of the psyche, heaven and earth, active and passive, thought, emotion, conscious, unconscious, and almost every other polarity. And what is important to realize is that both yin and yang are always present. Buried within the yin is the yang, and buried within the yang is the yin. And this is made clear in the yin-yang symbol that you probably are familiar with, where there's a black dot within the white yang half, which symbolizes the yin within the yang. And there's a white dot within the black yin half, which symbolizes the yang within the yin. And both are contained within a circle representing wholeness or the absolute. And this expresses beautifully what Jung is saying here. The outward, either yin or yang, contains an inner element of its opposite. And this is how we come to an understanding of Jung's anima and animus in the collective unconscious. Whichever side is being expressed consciously, the other side is buried. And there's this balance going on between consciousness and unconsciousness. And as I said, we often tend to project the inner onto others. And this is very true of the the anima and animus. An animus yang will project the feminine yin outside of itself. It it externalizes its inner unconscious self. And this takes the form of of seeing beauty in in a woman or the love of a mother, etc. And the animus yin will externalize and project the masculine yang outside of themselves. And this can be in terms of a a, a strong, handsome man showing strength in action, whatever, however it's it's uh, expressed. And obviously, I'll just give a couple examples. These projections can be numerous and varied, indeed, of the anima and the animus. They almost include an infinite number of variations. Jung noted that the animus corresponds to the father figure, the paternal logos, and the anima to the mother figure, the maternal eros. Logos, the animus, being more discriminating, more rational, dividing the world into abstract categories, eros being more emotional, stressing wholeness and connection. Again, we are not talking about biological men and women here, but psychological tendencies and traits. And what's more, what's fascinating is these psychological traits correspond directly to the left brain and right brain hemispheres we've discussed here so often, particularly starting with episode 10 on the divided brain. As has been shown, the right brain is more empathetic, connective, and the left brain is more discriminatory, more individualistic. There's more cohesion in the right hemisphere, which corresponds to the anima, and there's more separation in the left hemisphere, which corresponds to the animus. The left brain, the animus, the yang, works better with tools and inanimate objects, whereas the right brain, the anima, the yin, works better with people. As brain scientists have demonstrated, the left brain controls the right side of the body and the right brain controls the left side of the body. That's why uh, most people are right-handed because they being controlled by the left side of the brain, which is more handy with tools and things like that, where the right side of the brain is more interested in in people. And this, you know, this explains why males are often more tool oriented than females. And if tool setups in their their garage or or shed, obviously there are exceptions to this. There are left-handed people, there are... Guys that don't have tool sheds, et cetera. But you know my point. There is a fluidity here. It's not a black and white situation. Now, as I said, the left brain is more rational and individualistic, and the right brain more emotional and connective. Interestingly, though, there's one exception, and that's with anger, which tends to be more of a left brain thing a separation from oneself, of oneself from another, where the right brain, anima, is more connecting and forgiving. What is important here is that we have both sides within us, one explicit, one implicit. And we tend to express one of the sides externally, either the anima yin or the, the holistic, big-picture connectivity of the right brain, or the animus, yang, more individually and either-or thinking associated with the left brain. The other half is not emphasized, and it stays in the unconscious. Now, there's so many d- interesting things. I could go on and on talking about the distinctions here. For example, the anima wants to relate, the animus wants to create distinctions. The anima pulls people together, the animus pulls people apart. The left hemisphere of the animus is more associated with the individual conscious ego, and the right hemisphere of the anima is more associated with the unconscious connection to the collective unconscious. The logos, rational thought, tends to be more left brain of the animus and more under conscious control, whereas eros, the emotive connective response is more of the unconscious Uh, and tends to be more of the right brain. A strongly formed ego is more left brain, where the emotional connection of family and friends and community, of mother and child, is more right brain. And again, once again, there is fluidity here, but these differences cover a wide range of psychological attitudes. A key point is these exist within all of us. One's being expressed, one's not being expressed, but it's still there. Now, the ego is itself a left-brain conception, more of a left-brain conception, because the ego separates the individual from others. The ego is also somewhat in charge of the entire psych. The ego is the captain of the ship, if you will. And, of course, there are rebellions and mutinies um, within the mind, and this is part of the process of individuation. The ego, however, must not fully separate itself from the right brain or the collective unconscious. Otherwise, it becomes a destructive egomaniac. And likewise, one cannot go too far without an ego. Everybody needs some sort of an ego. If, it, if one loses one's ego and becomes totally submerged in the archetypes of the collective unconscious, one could be lost at sea, so to speak. So we need to have some sort of central command of the ego. And as I've said, the ego, though, can be more lopsided in some than in others. And just like with rulers, some egos are more authoritarian, more left-brain animus-oriented, and others are more cooperative, more animal-oriented. It is also the yin that allows the ego to connect to the collective unconscious. Remember, the right brain anima is connective, and it serves this role in connecting the animus-oriented ego to the more anima-oriented unconscious. So it's important to get in touch with this side of one's personality if one is going to explore and bring up to the surface certain elements of the unconscious. Now, these these things exist within us all. They have different shades, person-to-person, but the fundamental elements and polarities are the same, something we all share. And I think this was Jung's major contribution. And but by digging down and understanding these aspects of personality, one can become a more integrated self. and Jung called this the process of individuation. Now, just a bit on Hegel, we've we've also I mentioned how these terms, the anima and animus fit so well with Hegel's use of the word the German word Verstand and vernunft. Verstand meaning common thinking, which links to the left brain, animus, either or conceptualization, and Vernunft linking to holistic reasoning to the right brain to the anima, to uh, the connective big picture. And we did a whole episode on Verstand and Vernunft episode 37 if you want to check that out. Now finally, I would like to show how all this relates to Jewish mysticism, and in particular the Kabbalah and the Tree of Life. And this just dawned on me as I was working on this this episode and preparing for it. For more on mysticism in general, see episode 7, entitled Hegel and Mysticism. Now, central to Jewish mysticism is a diagram often called the Tree of Life. It is composed of 10 sephiroth or emanations from the Absolute. The diagram shows how these sephiroth show the path from the divine world of the absolute down to the mundane existence. Now, I did do a study of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism in, many years ago, and including analysis of the ten sephiroth, but it was not until I was preparing this episode that I had a personal breakthrough in terms of relating the Kabbalah to all that we've been talking about so far. And here's what I found. Some of you may be familiar with the Tree of Life Diagram, and I would urge you all to Google it and take a look at it, even now if you can, because it'll really help your understanding of what I'm about to cover. But I'll also post the the diagram in the podcast Facebook page. The ten Sephiroth are arranged in three columns. There's a left, a middle, and a right. And on the left and the right side, you have three Sephiroth each in descending order, and there are four in the middle, which are meant to balance the two opposing forces. Now, it's not just Jewish mysticism, Christian mysticism has also used the Tree of Life diagram to show a path of redemption redemption and awakening to spirit, the goal to balance the two sides and ascend spiritually. Now, in taking another look at the Tree of Life diagram, it dawned on me that this is in fact the map of the psyche as Jung described. The left side of the diagram corresponds precisely to the elements of the left brain, animus, the yang concepts we've been discussing and the right side of the diagram to the right brain anima yin concepts. Now, to demonstrate this, I'll discuss these three pairs of opposites as we move down the tree. The first pair, from left to right, is bina and Hokma. And these are translated generally as understanding and wisdom. Bina being understanding and Hokma being wisdom. And you see right here that this polarity is exactly what Hegel is describing with his Verstand and Vernunft. And these two Sephiroth must be balanced. That is what we've been saying in this entire episode. Relying solely on the left brain is relying on division and the ego only and it is limiting. And w- wisdom, holistic reasoning, needs its category of thoughts and abstractions of being of the left brain to make sense of things. So they both need to come together. An integrated personality relies on both. Now, I was curious if Hegel uh, had, any, had written about the tree of life of the Sephiroth. And there's not much there, very little, although he probably was exposed to it, maybe through others. But you know, certainly he had no knowledge of left brain right brain research, which came far after Hegel, which is part of pulling this all together, linking the psychology to the to the human brain. However, it, what's important to note is this duality, this fundamental duality is central not only to Jung's archetypes, but, but to both Kabbalah and Hegel. Both sense the duality and the needs, for, the need for both ways of thinking to have a fully integrated personality. Now, moving down below wisdom and understanding come the next pair, Gevura and Hesed. Gevura is generally defined as judgment and discipline, and it's on the left pillar. Hesed is generally described as mercy and kindness, and it's on the right pillar. And you can see a clear distinction here between the brain hemispheres again in Jung's Anima and Animus. The animus judges while the anima forgives, and it is not one side or the other that is right. There, there's a time for both, and it is, it is up to the human to balance the two correctly in any situation. The final Sephiroth pair is Hood and Netzach. Hood is on the left, it is suggestive of prayer, of giving words to thought. Netzach is on the right and stands for an everlasting, everlasting timelessness or infinity. Suggesting the infinite domain contained in the collective unconscious. Hood gives form, finiteness, to the infinite. And again, both the finite and the infinite must be balanced. And the infinite brings the, the, the reality to the, to, the, to the finiteness. And uh, it's so important to, to, to understand this. And this is absolutely key to Hegel's conception of, well, we've talked about of, of the finite and the, and the true infinite, um, this you can go back way back to episode four. Uh, I devoted an entire episode on just what true infinity represents and how it relates to the to the finite. So that's the third pair on the tree of life. Now I know we've covered a lot here, so let me summarize. Jung's theory of the psyche shows that our minds are much more than just ego consciousness, that our ego presents a persona or mask to the outside world, while at the same time getting more undesirable aspects of our personality hidden. And some of these dark parts of our personality we keep hidden from others and even ourselves. And this is called the shadow. And we have both a personal shadow and a societal shadow. And the societal shadow are those elements of the human psyche that are deemed negative or inappropriate by, by society or culture. And as I said, some of the elements we're aware of and others not so. And below the shadow, though, however, we come to two primary elements of the collective unconscious, the twin towers of the anima and animus, where the masculine attitudes are primarily outwardly expressed, the more feminine attitudes stay in the unconscious. And where the uh, more feminine attitudes are being primarily outwardly expressed, the more masculine attitudes, the animus stay in the unconscious. And it's been shown, and I've discussed hopefully enough, that this is much more than just biological sex, but these represent two core psychic attitudes that have a certain fluidity to them, and they have multifaceted tendencies. They're not rigid categories. And further, it has been shown that these attitudes correspond to the two brain hemispheres, as well as the yin and yang symbol, and Hegel's Verstand and Vernuft, and the Sephiroth of the mystic Kabbalah's Tree of Life. And finally, what is important about all this is that we first must realize that we have an unconscious part to our psyche, that it contains archetypes that are within us all, that we we all share in these. And what we're consciously expressing conceals the other side of the circle, which remains in the unconscious. And we should strive to understand this part of our psyche as best as we can, to realize it is part of us as well, to incorporate as much of it as we can into our ego consciousness so we can have a fuller spectrum of consciousness, including these psychic elements in our conscious awareness and attitudes for a more integrated, full, holistic life. So that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I know we covered a lot of ground here, and hopefully you've been intrigued by some of the new ideas and correspondences I presented here. I I know this has been a popular topic among listeners, and I look very much forward to your comments. And as always, references will be posted at the podcast Facebook page at Cunning of Geist in a few days. And please be sure to like and follow that page because I do post there almost daily. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cunning of Geist. And please feel free to share this episode on social media to your like-minded friends and and help spread the word about this podcast. So once again, I'll be signing off by saying this is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.